for April 17th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 459. The fate of the furious. Having a kid isn't a 10-second race. This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we're talking about the things we love. And there's almost nothing more uh, that we love more than the Fast and the Furious franchise. Uh, Pete, you know, today's a very special day. Do you know why that is? Why is that, Matt? It's, it's because, uh, no spoilers yet, Dom Toretto seems to have betrayed his family and run off with Charlize Theron in white girl dreads. But she's the very definition of high-tech terrorism. <laughs> it, she absolutely is that. I'm uh, Matt Rather. That is Pete Fenzel. This is one of our storied two-handers. This is the culmination, the high point, uh, the climax of family month on the Overthinking It podcast, though there may be some denouement and fallout next week. Uh, and we are talking about The Fate of the Furious, starring Vin Diesel, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, and others and uh and you know pete it's a it's i i feel like i should just throw to you because uh you know i know what a a devotee you are of these films so am i but they they hold a special place in your heart and i guess i should begin with the question um did this film live up to your expectations or were you disappointed by it oh it surpassed my expectations hugely it hugely hugely surpassed my expectations i don't know if this is Oh, at big time. Maybe even my favorite Fast and Furious movie yet, possibly. Uh, I just, I just adored it. Now I love seven, and of course we all love five, uh, and then one and three, and then four <laughs> is at the bottom with two, and you know how it is. You watch them in, you watch them in the uh, empirical order or what have you, in chronological order, uh, as such. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I love this movie, and I'll tell you why. The big reason I loved it, other than that, it constantly surprised me and was constantly fun and really struck that note of absurdity just so well is that it didn't, it, it addressed all of the, all of that we've been talking about for the past three weeks was addressed in this movie. And it let us know that it was going to address it right at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Like right at the beginning, they were like, by the way, all the things that you've kind of been concerned about concerning Fast and the Furious, we're also concerned about them. And in this movie, we're going to either interrogate them, explore them, or like throw out things that don't work and just replace them. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or as they break down, as the, as the individual parts break down, we'll replace them with uh, whatever is to hand, even if it's a boat yeah. engine. Yeah, well, see, there you go, right? Because you know, we've, in overthinking it, we've talked about, and by the way, at this point, we're going to be spoilers for Fate of the Furious and for all the other Fast and the Furious movies. So if you haven't watched Fate of the Furious yet, watch it. Uh, if you haven't watched any of the Fast and the Furious movies yet, listen to the podcast because you're not, let's face it, you're not going to at this point. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you know, spoiler alert, it is, it is furious, but it is not fast. It's two hours yeah. and 15 minutes long. Yeah. And a half an hour of commercials. I think Universal is packing every trailer for everything they're currently making. I think that their new HR training video for office managers <laughs> had a trailer before Face of Furious. <laughs> uh, but, um, but so on overthinking, we have this thing that we call the Downton Abbey moment, which is a, an analytical tool for, for analyzing serialized pop culture. And the idea is that in, in a given episode of a serialized 
story, you want to ascertain what a given episode is about, in this case, what a given entry into the series is about, as distinct from the other entries in the series. And the way that you get there, right, is you assume that there is some sort of coherence, <laughs> like either one that's been put in intentionally, in big quotes, or one that just emerges, right, out of sort of taste and refinement, that there is in this episode, in this instance, there's something that pulls it all together, or you can find something that pulls it all together. And then you look for a scene that has nothing to do with the main plots of the movie, and you see if they talk about that thing. If the conversation that they have gives you a clue, a doorway, to understanding everything else that happened in the movie. And we call it the Downton Abbey moment because in Downton Abbey they'll have stuff like it's the war or someone's getting married and they're changing everything at the house. But there'll be a conversation about tea or hats that will be like very portentous and, uh, and will let you know how to think about everything. And what you just said, Matt, I don't know if you felt this way, but I felt like the big Downton Abbey moment – of this instance of the Fast and the Furious. And other Fast and Furious instances have also had Downton Abbey moments. Um, the Fast and Furious 7 is the one where the little van, where Paul Walker's kid throws the little car out of the minivan, and he says, remember, cars can't fly, right? What did I say? Cars can't fly, right. which is about, and then for the whole rest of the movie and all the action sequences, the cars are falling from great heights. They're either like coming out of planes or they're going down mountains or they're driving out of skyscrapers, right? There's a lot of vertical space and a lot of it is about sort of what goes up must come down. And, and this is also about death, right? And about Paul Walker and all this stuff, right? Um, in this one, it's that wonderful scene in Cuba where they're looking at all of the classic American cars. Right. And, and this is, this is before, this is before the first street race, actually the only street race qua street race, uh, yes. in, in the movie, that is to say, like racing for slips, um, and and by the way, the, it's at the scene, but this is not a car that's involved in the street the street race, right? And right. so it's it's kind of superfluity, right? It's, it's extraneous character sort of clues you in to the idea that it's there for thematic reasons as opposed to for you know uh, the necessity of plot, right. Right. And the event is, you know, in Cuba, because of the embargoes, uh, they have old American cars that they've had to restore and get replacement parts for and keep up over the years rather than importing new cars. So there's, you know, sort of culture of classic old American cars on the streets. And they're looking at these beautiful old Chevys. I think that they're Bel Airs, right? Or at least some of them are. Uh, Coupe de Ville's, all that kind of like really fancy, old timey, big fin kind of stuff. And and Don Toretto's talking to this guy, and he says, well, yeah, for this one, you know, we get replacement parts from Plymouth. We get replacement parts from Fords. And he says, like, this one has a boat engine in it, right? Um, and, and, um, and there's a couple of things that are said about the situation. But two weeks ago, it was, it, it was two weeks ago that we talked about kind of family and Fast and the Furious as a symbol that can have multiple meanings across multiple entries in the franchise. Right. Right, rather than a metaphor that has, like, a specific uh, coherent uh, vehicle and tenor that it's trying to communicate, right? And this movie is like that, right? Uh, where where the the Fast and Furious family is is explored in a whole bunch of different directions, meaning a whole bunch of different things. And I would even argue on a whole bunch of different levels of presentationalist versus representationalist reality, right? There are events that I don't think you're really supposed to believe are actually happening in the strictest sense. Because then you sort of have to consider it as allegories or representations. Uh, it just and I think people would just sort of accept that in the way that they're looking to kind of 
rationalize the awesome movie that they're watching. But anyway, to back it up and to, to back up back up the truck, as it were, uh, there's a couple reactions to the the uh, the Chevy, the Cadillac. Uh, the fancy GM cars that have Ford and Plymouth parts and boat engines in them. And Dom says, and he says this about his the car that he takes the race to, uh, it doesn't matter what's under the hood, it only matters what's driving, who's driving, right? Which introduces this really interesting psychological question through the movie as to a distinguisher between a, a sort of thing in itself that exerts active control and, and sort of mental will, right, versus uh, the sense of uh, accumulated experience and, uh, and, and accumulated culture and, and sort of preconditioned psychological circumstances. And it really it begs, it, it raises the question of free will, right? First of all, it's very silly to say. It's very silly to say in a car race that it doesn't matter what car you're driving because it absolutely does, <laughs> right? Absolutely matters what's under the hood. If you have an extra thousand horsepower, you're probably going to win if you can put it to your wheels and they're not going to come flying out in fragments all over the street, right? But the point being that uh, uh, a person has things under their hood, right? And, and the things that a person has under their hood are their memories, and it's all the stuff that we've talked about over the last three weeks with regards to the Fast and Furious family, right? Your shared experiences, any sort of codes that you have, right? The things that you do, what, what, what circles you run in, your, your level of kindness to other people, your commitments to other people, your traditions and rituals. This is all stuff that's kind of under your hood and will inform and affect and influence and maybe even decide your decision-making. And to say that the things that you as a person have under your hood don't matter. All that matters is the person behind the, the wheel declares a sort of a faith in absolute willpower and free will that is profound and also probably not justified, right? Like uh, that a person can do whatever they need to do, regardless of what's kind of going on in their heart or in their mind, in their history, right? Um, and, and this is explored in a whole bunch of ways throughout the movie. This idea of kind of psychological uh, versus kind of uh, will-based and active philosophical philosophical action. Sure, it, it. I mean, it raises a number of of questions along these lines. Another one is the extent to which you should think of yourself as a unified uh, being, as opposed yeah. to as opposed to a collection of parts or kind of the sum of your parts, right? right. And and this it really comes down on the side of a. Uh, of a kind of transcendent spirit that governs and and is superordinate to the the like the machinery of you right uh, an, another thing that it does though is i I think there's something to the fact that the father and the son maintain this car together, right? And that the father and the son are kind of a machine working in unison and the car is a machine working in unison, right? And so like to the, to the, ex to a certain extent, what you say is right, um, that there is a, a division, there's actually a, a hierarchy proposed between not just a division, a division with values assigned, um, a, a higher value placed on the driver and a lower value placed on, on the car, uh, even to the point of like, it doesn't matter, um, it doesn't matter what the car is. Uh, but then there's also this sort of, this sort of, um, blurring of that line because the car is 
the labor that goes into the car. You know, it's it's almost like the car is who's driving it if who's driving it has been has been uh maintaining it all of this uh all of this time. And like I you know, I believe that like I believe that Dom could not have won that street race um if uh, if any, if it was not a Toretto car, if it was not a Toretto jalopy, uh, that, that, <laughs> right. That he was, that he was driving and had it been just some rando on the street who gave, uh, who gave him his broken down car, right? Like the, the, um, the driver is more important than the car, but to a certain extent that the, the, the reason that works is because the driver, uh, the driver is the car. There's also, I mean, we talk about sort of family structure and sort of non-traditional family structure, and we can't sort of get over the kind of the original mission statement of the first movie, uh, which is political, which is about sort of people who fall on the margins of society, uh, being entitled to be respected and to be valued and to have their, uh, quote unquote alternative or their, uh, quote unquote, uh, not average, uh, lifestyles or lives, lives experience, uh, taken as legitimate and taken as meaningful. And, um, the fact that, you know, the fact that the engine has all of these parts in it, right. Uh, is the, you know, is, uh, to me rhymes with the idea that the family has all of these sort of non-blood relatives in it, that it's kind of a family of choice uh, or a, fam- yeah. a family of experience um, and the sort of the mixed ethnic makeup of, of a lot of the, uh, a lot of the members of the family, right? Like is, is important. Um, oh, it's about most important. Yeah. The whole mission of what they're doing at this point. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that like, um, this this sort of thing, with one exception that I, that I want to to get to later, uh, this this film it's not so much that it bashes the uh, the traditional family because the 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 Brian uh, Mia and little baby uh, Toretto right like yeah. Mia's baby um, do we know that baby's name I forget but the the uh, yeah that like though though we know and actually in in the film it's more or less explicitly acknowledged that Paul Walker is dead and Brian is not coming around anymore yeah. um, the way that this is lampshaded in in uh, Fate of the Furious is very interesting to me because what they say is no no can, can we call Brian no we know we can't call Brian. We're not dragging that family into this. And so there is a sense in which this like nuclear family is sacrosanct and they can't, you know, they can't be interfered with, with these shenanigans now that it's, uh, you know, now that it's a nuclear family with a kid and, and, uh, you know, you know, white picket fence, they're, they're often white picket fence land. And it's not like there's a, there's a real, uh, honor paid to that. Now it's complicated because of the death of Paul Walker we know that it's not we know that it's not quote unquote real uh in a certain sense but it's it's held up as a value so it's not i am not saying that this film wants to sort of uh wants to elevate the heterogeneous family at the expense of the quote unquote traditional family but it wants to elevate the heterogeneous family uh in its own in its own right and kind of for its own um unique unique set of virtues and this is true except except for one thing which i which i want to talk uh talk about later um 
Yeah. But, so, so to oh, go ahead. Yeah, you're for, but for the but for the most part, what I'm saying holds. That that like the uh, the engine is made up of many different parts. The family is made up of of many different parts. Even if the parts weren't intended by quote unquote nature to go together. Have you noticed I'm saying quote unquote a lot? I just uh, there's scare quotes. I want to problematize uh, pretty much every word that I'm saying. <laughs> Well, it's all problems, right? But then you just need the right team to bring the solutions. So, and there's a, there's a couple other things that are said in the Cuban street race before we move on that I want to acknowledge. One of them, and it's about where we start, which is what we talked about two weeks ago at the beginning of our kind of three-week sojourn, where Letty says about the car that Don is going to race in the Cuban street race, which is made up of a whole bunch of you know awful parts, and Don has been jer- jerry-rigging it, right? To, uh, to have with a ridiculous, this is like a turbocharger. I'll just pull this soda tab and my car will, will super boost. And Letty says, uh, you know, it's a bomb, right? And, and then, then, uh, Dom says, it's fast, right? <laughs> and then Tom says, I only need it to go a mile, right? And I feel like these three lines, they tell you where you are in the Fast and Furious franchise right now, because the current movie is it, it is coming off of this very solid end stop ending where Paul Walker and Vin Diesel drive off into the sunset in opposite directions, and it, it ended on its own terms, and that was great. But where the rest of the story is is a huge mess, and as we've talked about, we don't need to relabor uh, belabor those points again. Is, is that uh, the the real world and the fictional world? We're not really sure where things stand. We're not really sure what the different characters mean anymore. And you can listen to our podcast from a couple weeks ago to, to ex- explain that. But there's this fear that this movie's going to be terrible, right? And Letty expresses the fear by saying like it's a bomb, right? And Vin Diesel says it only has to go a mile, right? Which is like I can do it. I, I only have to do two and a half hours of this movie, <laughs> and as long as it's fast. Is it's fast, then it can it can go. And, and the idea of like we're not doing the quarter mile, we're doing the Cuban mile, right? Is a really interesting way of saying no. You know, we're, this is not just one movie. <laughs> this is going to be a long story. Uh, but but I think, and maybe I'm skipping a couple of things because there's a lot to, to to talk about. But this also circles back to what you were talking about because that conversation is about something else. And this idea of it's a bomb, it's fa- versus it's fast, and we don't have to do it for a long time. And and this, I think, connects with a lot of what you were saying uh, just now about nuclear families versus heterogeneous families of choice, which is that wonderful scene. And this is, of course, the whole plot in the movie, but it really crystallizes in the wonderful scene where Dom is chasing Letty down the alley and she stops at the end of the alley and she is literally holding a nuclear suitcase, <laughs> right? Like a suitcase. A, she is holding a suitcase with the ability to launch a global nuclear war. She is carrying the nuclear football. She has a bun in the oven, so to speak. <laughs> um, and, 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 she, and she confronts Don and she says to Don that I know you won't shoot me because you love me. Right. And this is coming on the heels of a conversation slightly earlier in the movie where she raises and Michelle Rodriguez is wonderful in this movie. I think this is Michelle Rodriguez's best Fast and Furious movie by like a pretty big margin. Letty actually gets some pretty chewy stuff. Uh, and she also passes the Bechtel test a whole bunch of times as long as you count people talking to each other through computers or one person talking and the other one screaming. Right? As long as you don't have to have two people using dialogue in the same room, which almost never happens in this movie. Uh, oh, that's an exaggeration. Then, then Michelle Rodriguez. Uh, 
has a lot of opportunities to talk to other women in this movie. Um, but, but the main thing being that the nuclear football that Michelle Rodriguez is carrying is the fact that her and Dom have never talked about whether they're going to ever have kids or not. And, you know, I don't know what their real life, what their characters' ages are, but Michelle Rodriguez is 38 years old and Vin Diesel is 50, right? Uh, practically. And so this is a question, this is a conversation that if it needed to happen, has to have had happened by now. And if it's one that they, if they do want to have a kid, they get her get cracking immediately and call a doctor, right? Like, um, I mean, 38 isn't, isn't, Beyond the it's, pale, it's, but it's certainly like, it's certainly not unheard of, but I think it's beyond the this. They call it uh, there's a technical term for it, which is geriatric pregnancy, which just sounds <laughs> just sounds awful uh, when you you know when you, you didn't it, think we would be talking about geriatric pregnancy on the Fast and Furious, <laughs> but here we are, right? Yeah, and that's yeah, and she's sort of holding the she's sort of holding the suitcase up in front of her. You know what I mean? Like in the in yeah. the the thing, and it's it's nuclear. It's the nuclear family yeah exactly it's the nuclear family and she says that it's a bomb right but his determination is that because he doesn't have to do anything for any extended period of time it isn't a problem well guess what right having a kid isn't a 10 second race right like it's a cuban mile i mean well yeah sure i mean conceiving a kid is a 10 second race but uh well, well then you owe me a 10 second car and i don't even know what that um that's my nickname never mind the um uh but yeah but this this is the fast and furious movie that investigates the nuclear family as the as the representation of family that up until this point in the series they haven't really cared about much okay right and there's a, yeah yeah so so then i you know i'm i'm going to use this opportunity uh, to dive into the topic that I wanted to dive into, which is one one uh, thing that I think is is uh, a little bit retrograde uh, in this this movie. So um, the uh, Dom's old. This, this fl- is not the most progressive movie ever made, by the way. So like, it some of it's going to be retrograde. I like, yeah, sure. I mean, I there's a lot there's a lot in it that I that I appreciated actually, especially along the lines of the kind of the racial mix and some of the way the kind of the team of good guys versus who the bad guy is and stuff like this that that and actually there's an interesting reversal in what i'm about to say that is is a little interesting that bucks you know that bucks the kind of tiresome uh that bucks tiresome history and trends um on on the one hand even even uh while while not doing it on the other hand but but uh dom's old flame is named elena right uh who has the baby that that is named yeah. uh she, she's a she's from the fast five she's a brazilian cop Right, and right. she to oversimplify. and yeah. and that that relationship was during while well, we thought uh, Michelle Rodriguez was gone before before we knew that that she was back and had amnesia. And the plot of this the plot of this movie, I mean, the whole sort of inciting incident of this plot is that uh, Dom it's revealed to him that uh, she is the mother of his child that that he got her pregnant and that she has this baby. She reveals that she was going to tell him uh, after the honeymoon, which seems like oh. Hey, happy honeymoon. Um, but, uh, you know, but you know what? There are all kinds of, there are all kinds of families. The second I saw her on screen and saw that she had a kid, I thought she has to die. Right. The second she, she came up because this is the way in which it's not, you know, um, the, the, uh, let me propose a counterfactual movie where, 
It's uh, not exactly, you know, three men and a baby or like, uh, you know, I don't know, two doms and a letty or what, you know, whatever you want. Like the the um, it's not exactly that uh, a complicated co-parenting situation, but that like there is a blended family that involves uh, a biological mother and father and then a subsequent relationship. Right. There are all kinds of families like this in the world. Uh and I, I knew that the movie wouldn't do that, right? Because that at the end, Michelle Rodriguez uh, couldn't end the film with a rival or, or potential rival or even the hint of, of something like that, right? Like it's a one true pairing type situation. And, mm-hmm. and that, and that uh, Dominic Toretto and Michelle Rodriguez and uh, Letty have to be together, um, have to be sort of unambiguously and completely together. And so the, the woman had to die and, and the way it happens, I mean, it underscores the, the wanton cruelty of Charlize Theron's character. It actually, it sets up an okay ish kind of speech from her about the bio, the, the evolutionarily derived instinct to protect your children and stuff, but it's not necessary for the plot, right? Like she has X leverage on Dom after, uh, uh, before she kills mom, uh, she, uh, uh, Elena, uh, she has exactly the same amount of leverage on Dom after she kills uh, Elena. Right? It doesn't. It doesn't alter that. It doesn't alter that at all. She has to die uh, in um, so that the nuclear family can be established. Not a not a blended or sort of non traditional family. That within this non traditional family, there has to be a nuclear family. Now, I'm going to christen this the reverse Miss Saigon maneuver. <laughs> Right. Because in this case, uh, you know, it's the the it's the light skinned woman. Right. Who has to die so that the dark skinned woman can have the nuclear family, as opposed to spoiler alert for Miss Saigon, when the the Vietnamese mother uh, of the American soldier's child uh, kills herself in the very last moments of Miss Saigon so that the child will have a, a nuclear family back in in yeah. uh, back in America. Right. So like, and by the way, Miss Saigon and Game of Thrones are the same story. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wouldn't, so, wouldn't you're it, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> that's. I mean, there's a. Yeah, that's actually not a, a bad point. I mean, I. I actually would like. I would like. Uh, you know, standing up on that on that podium, standing up on that. You know, uh, uh, headman's uh, headsman's. Um, you know, plinth or whatever. I. I wish uh, Ned Stark would come out singing like, "Why God? Why?" <laughs> Today, da ba da ba da. Call Jon Snow. <laughs> the dust of life. I actually want to write a whole post about this, but I'll 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 spend it on the podcast here. It's a special day. It's Easter. It's a holiday. It's Fate of Furious Day. So it's Patriots Day. All these things are wrapped up together. So, so uh, yeah. So that like, and and to me, this was you know, this was um, uh, this was a. Uh, both an, an interesting thing. Now, now there is a long, right? There is a long and sort of sordid tradition in movies of a, a sort of non-white woman having to be sacrificed in order for the white woman to be happy, right? At the, yeah. at the end of the movie. And uh, d- to a certain extent, this was, this was the opposite of that. But like, I can imagine the, I can imagine the story where like Elena joins the crew, right? Like joins yeah. the sort of uh, floating, 
loving, party, orgiastic, free love, uh, heterogeneous family, you know, and that doesn't, that can't happen. That's not, that's sort of not where it's, that's not where its heart is. And, and this is the kind of the strain of traditionalism that I was referring to, uh, in the thing. It's a minor, I mean, on, on the scale of the film and some of the things it does, it's a minor, it's a minor quibble. Um, but, but it is yeah. like, uh, it is an interesting thing in, you know, in a film that is like, uh, it's uh, after the the first sequence. There are a lot of obligatory things um, in the first sequence. Like one, we look at a lot of butts in swimsuit, in like skimpy swimsuit bottoms. You know, yeah. uh, look look over, uh, look up a lot. The camera looks up a lot of short skirts. Right. Like, uh, that's, that's one of the obligatory things. But after that, it's not like, there's not a lot of sort of eye candy or, uh, uh, exploitative, like sexy, sexy photography, you know, um, every cold, too cold. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really. Everyone is, yeah, this is, Hey, this is a downside of making Russia the villain or the, like a, a, a location of sort of lawlessness and, and, uh, international, uh, conflict right like it gets pretty chilly there you know this they they had the right idea setting setting one in brazil um yeah but (laughs) so yeah so so picking up what you're saying i agree so the 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 cheesecake is heterogeneous or heterogeneously distributed throughout the movie because the movie is trying to be multiple things at once. When I was talking about the movie existing in multiple different levels of reality, I felt like I needed to interpret or rationalize the death of Elena as taking place less as the death of an actual person, right? Which is, of course, this is a sort of fridging, right? Like the old idea that it's a Green Lantern, right? Where like he has a girlfriend and she gets murdered and stuffed in a fridge. And the only reason that she's in the fridge is to motivate the Green Lantern as if the only purpose of a woman in life is to give her man a reason to do something. Uh, and that's abhorrent and not great. Um, but but in this case, and in this case, it perhaps happens, right? Or it definitely happens that Elena's Elena's killed for no other reason than to motivate Dom. Although it is also, as you said, now that I consider it, to uh, to to empower Letty as the one true love, right, or the one true partner. Uh, but but the other thing I thought was that uh, it it was a representation that Dom is the car that has multiple different parts under the hood. That, that he is in a conflicted place where he has a variety of different sort of psychological things that are happening and psychological obligations and sort of senses of himself and senses of where his family is that conflict with each other. And he is in denial about this being important, but it really bothers him. And over the course of this movie, uh, he is, it causes a lot of trouble and pain. And he has to get to a place where he can reconcile and come to terms with and clean up mostly just by unifying all of the sort of disparate pains and disagreements that have been going on inside of him. And one of them is that he needs to kill the memory of his ex-girlfriend, right? Sure. Uh, in, in order to be with the girl that he's with, the woman he's with now, uh, his mother. He needs, And this idea that, because it's also much more comfortable to think of Elena's child as really being Don and Letty's child, which I know is not really, I mean, it's tricky to sort of make that leap unless you're really comfortable in talking about all this as sort of an allegory or a, or sort of a dream space. Unless you think of sort of Cypher's plane as almost a sort of Dantean kind of moral space, 
where like more like people give speeches to each other about abstract moral concepts and people like look at images from their pasts, right? And people kind of like consider ab the abstract, right? Like Cypher's plane doesn't exist in any one place. It drifts from country to country unseen, right? And it's and it's the sort of place that you go to talk about the nature of the mind and, and the nature of subjective experience, right? Because all that stuff about evolution is all about what's under your hood versus who's driving your car. Right. And Cypher is Cypher is the extreme of uh, she believes that there's only a driver, right? She doesn't. She believes she believes she is the driver, and she believes everyone else is all engine, and that as long as she can manipulate everybody else's engine, she can drive the whole car of the earth, right? And that her, that's what her sort of interrogations are about. They're about breaking down people's justifications for having control over their own lives, and that's what makes her villainous. Even to the point of trying to suck the baby out of the side of the airplane, <laughs> right? Like, uh, like, no, Jason Statham, you can't kill me because you have an inborn instinct to save babies, <laughs> right? Like, and she's right, and that's what makes her a good villain is that there's a grain of truth. But I just thought that, especially because she's behind glass, like Elena's behind glass, and she's in darkness, and then she sort of gets lit up by recollection. It sort of felt to me like, like I, like I wanted to interpret. Elena's presence and death as Dom saying, I'm not ready to have a child with Letty because I am still not over this very strange and extremely intimate relationship I had with this Brazilian cop years ago while Letty, remember Letty? We thought Letty was dead and then she had amnesia. Let's not pretend that that's not something that happened in these stories, right? Like Dom has been through a lot. Um, and I guess and the way I would sort of jump from that is to contrast it, right, and kind of get us back on track with the movie, because right after the Cuban race, right, so we've got all this stuff about the nuclear family, the nuclear bomb, the, the, the uncomfortable status of Elena in this movie as a woman who is put out there in a retrograde way, uh, but, but you can interpret it in a bunch of ways. But it's Dom a little bit, I find, sorry, just, I want to let you go. I'm, I'm going to let you finish, but Elena was yeah. one of the greatest Dom girlfriends of all time. Of all yeah. time. No, um, the, the way it's, the way it's set up by Cypher also is that, like, um, I'm going to have Tormund Giant Spain kill your ex because uh, you chose yeah. Letty over me. And so it's yeah. the, like, it's kind of like the substitution of the one for the, for the other is set up at the level of like realistic plot. And then at the level of, at the level of kind of allegorical, at the level of allegory or representation, uh, as you say, it's, I, I find what you're saying uh, sort of, I find what you're saying sort of convincing. I mean, it doesn't, um, the film doesn't maintain what we might call a consistent distance from reality. <laughs> no, nor a consistent velocity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost like it's, uh, you know, being chased by a heat seeking missile across, you know, a frozen lake and then up, uh, up a hill and then does a, uh, you know, does a 180. But I'm sorry, we're, uh, the sec, uh, after we do the, the Cuban street race scene, the only street race um in this film uh we are taken to uh one Dwayne the Rock Johnson giving a uh giving a an incredible pep talk uh, the likes of which yeah. I wish I had received in my young uh you know club soccer career 
Yeah, and this is such a wonderful. This has got to be up there with the all-time. Let's take boring exposition and make it interesting to watch scenes. It's really got to be like one of the best all-time, right? This is the idea of like Jesuit Jack Bauer does best, where he, you know, it's like we have to talk about a bunch of complicated things that are happening, but we're going to do it while we're running across the street under enemy gunfire with like a giant ticking clock hanging over our heads, right? We're going to take a scene that's going that would normally be boring, and we're going to do everything we can to make it exciting and interesting, and having the like the Agent Smith-ish DOD guy show up to give The Rock his new assignment while he's coaching the girls' soccer game. I mean, it's also grounded in character and gives him motivation, right? Uh, and it's just such a wonderful exposition scene. But, but what I'm saying, when I, why I bring it up, is that The Rock and the girls have that wonderful, I'm assuming it's Samoan war chant, right? Because that's The Rock's Polynesian ancestry, right? It's Samoan for the most part, I believe. Because he's part Samoan, he's part African-American. Uh, he, he is the new face of America as such. And and he has that wonderful thing where you see his team and they're all sort of motivated and driven in unison with this war chant. And the other team is sort of all dressed in pink and very confused. <laughs> and, and And you know what that says to me is that says, okay, so Dom is the Cuban Cadillac that has a boat engine in him or a bunch of Ford and Plymouth parts that have all been cobbled together over these eight movies. And, and he doesn't really know what's driving him anymore, but he's confident that as long as he keeps going fast, he can keep getting through every problem that he interse- intersects with. And this is the movie that's going to test that, right? But this idea that Dom is the conflicted one and The Rock is this, the Chevy to the bone, right? The Rock is like all stock parts, right? Like, uh, I mean, he isn't, but the idea is The Rock has one motor. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The Rock has one motor and one driver, and they are the same. He basically has a hydraulic switch that goes directly to the crankshaft, right, or something along those lines. And he just he just pounds it with his arm. He doesn't even need to use gas, right? It's just like The Rock is all both history and will. It's all character and intention. Hobbs as a character, the whole daddy's got to go to work, and he wants to shoot, he wants to, to participate in the fight so fast that he breaks the cast right back in Fast and Furious 7 to shoot the minigun at the helicopter with a broken arm that he got from falling out of a building. Um, but there's this, there's this, inter- this really cool little B plot, right? So the A plot of Fast and the Furious 8 is about people who have multifarious sorts of memories and definitions of family and, uh, and, and haven't really unified their intention and their sort of psychological experience, uh, both alone and with each other, under sort of the notion of what they have to do, especially over time, right? And there's a bunch of different people who are, like, not really sure what they want to do, and they got to make this up. And then Cypher is the one who's saying, like, no, none of you have actual control. I have all the control. And the horror story is all the driverless cars. But we'll get to the driverless cars in a little bit. The B-plot is about people who are utterly certain about both themselves and their families and it's kind of a bromance involving all these people coming to sort of like each other and, appre- and appreciate each other for who they are, right? Because the, the movie starts it out in a place where they're hostile to each other because of what side they're on, right? Which is, this is the Rock Jason Statham plot, which becomes the Jason Statham Dame Helen Mirren Gaston plot, which is just amazing, right? Which is, uh, and it starts with the Samoan War chant that there are people in the world who are so certain about their families and their heritage that it really motivates them and it really makes them feel at one with their intentions 
right? Uh, and that these people exist in the Fast and Furious universe alongside the people who are who are kind of adrift because of their lack of material privilege, traditional families, right? Like the, the, the Fast and the Furious are also sort of the young and the restless. They're also the bold and the beautiful, right? They are the general and the hospital. Uh, no, not quite that one. But they're just, they're, they're the sort of... Um, the, the young and the fast, and they live fast and they die young. They're the kids in America. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just, I can say it over and over again, but they're the lost boys, right, is really what they are. They're yeah. the lost boys from Peter Pan, and, right. and Dom is their Peter Pan, who is their sort of surrogate adult who's supposed to lead them. Um, but Rock, the Rock isn't like that. The Rock isn't a lost boy. The Rock is very much found, right? The Ho- Hobbs is a, fo- a man who has found himself because he sees himself in every mirror he passes because he's enormous, right? Like, uh, and that's just sort of how it works. And having Dom's certainty about his adopted family and Hobbs' certainty about his own identity has been a wonderful interplay. Uh, you know, when they're uh, they're adversaries in Fast Five and they become friends, right? Uh, but but then this this other plot is about you know. The Rock is really certain about himself and his family and who he is. And then Jason Statham is really certain about himself and his family and who he is. And then they hate each other because they see each other as frauds. But then they come to appreciate that the other person is actually being genuine, at which point they become friends, at which point they are, end up on the same team, at which point they both go home to their families <laughs> right? Like uh, uh, in various ways. Um, and I just felt like that was a wonderful little... Uh, kind of crosscut, right, against the main message of the, the main message of the story, which is sort of taking you from a place of uncertainty to a place of certainty. And this one is taking you kind of from a place of certainty to a place of belonging, I suppose, or I guess, I guess what, to a place of peace, right, rather than a state of war. Well, yeah, um, well, I mean, you know, we know yeah. that that there are two more films in this franchise that are planned, right? Like, so, yeah. so I feel like the- so this is a trilogy, right? Like. Seven, eight, and or eight, nine, and ten are going to be a trilogy, is what Ben Diesel has said. Right, and that, uh, that, that like, I feel like uh, the you know Charlize Theron must uh, you know. She, I feel like it should be like a Bond movie, like. But Charlize Cipher will return in, yeah. you know, yep. um, the the nine of the Furious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, what do you even call it? Because with Furious Seven. Nine and the Furious. No. Okay. Fast, fast and the Furious colon nine lives. Uh, oh yeah, that's maybe. true. That's something like that. Nine lives. Yeah, feline and the Furious. It's the one where they're all talking animals. I don't know. <laughs> they're all cats with nine lives. That's what it is. And final Fast X Furious. I think is a good name for the tenth one, right? Uh, and that'll be the last one, right? And X marks the spot uh, on that one, but I don't know about nine. Uh, but anyway, anyway, continue, continue. Well, the the I'm not sure I was uh, not oh, sure so I was going saying- about that. That well, that like the one thread it leaves hanging, right? Is that uh, is that um, Charlize Theron is is gone? Otherwise, like just around that table, you know, around that table at the end, you know. Uh, like the rock has said daddy's coming home which is a, a uh yeah you know a callback to the catchphrase over the last couple of movies like daddy's gotta go to work which is an interesting <laughs> i mean which is an interesting thing when you think about identity and like job versus identity um i mean frankly a lot of these a lot of these characters are 
the way that they exist is kind of like it's not the car it's the it's the driver right like that each character has sort of an essence and the specifics and the kind of circumstances of legality and illegality where you stand vis-a-vis society whether you're a cop or a criminal right like the idea at the end that the rock with you know with the stroke of a pen right the rock has his record expunged which was always possible to do all along because the record is engine the record belongs to the engine side of the equation not the driver's side of the equation you know uh at least the kind of the legal record uh belongs to that you know that that like but it doesn't matter because uh, you know uh a copper criminal dom is always dom copper criminal uh the rock is always the rock copper criminal letty is always letty right and this was this was part of the amnesia plot like that you know uh like even if she remember she's still letty whether she remembers uh she's letty or not it reminds me of one of my favorite one of my favorite things that you say to like infuriate a um infuriate a middle school student if you ever have like the the uh unique pleasure of of teaching them right and, and this is a, a sort of a joke or a uh uh trolling story that's i think apocryphally attributed to abraham lincoln right um so how many if you call a sheep's uh, if you call a sheep's tail a leg, how many legs does a sheep have? And the, you know, the slack-jawed adolescent in front of you will say, well, five. And you say, no, even if you call it a leg, it's still a tail. Right. And, <laughs> and the, you know, the idea, uh, the idea is that like there is, there is a capital R sort of reality or there is an essence. There is essence. There is existence and there is, uh, there is essence. And you can't, uh, you know, and that sort of, I, I guess existence precedes essence is the thing, right? Like the, the existence of the rock, uh, and rockness, uh, precede, uh, precedes any of the, the sort of things that, that, uh, that you can do with that. So like there's the, and then the family, the family meal also includes, uh, uh, the father of us all, Mr. Nobody, you know, (laughs) and his son, his son figure, you know, uh, little nobody, little, little, little nobody. And, uh, you know, and that like all, you know, that, that all of this is, is, um, is sort of, is sort of wrapped up and there's sort of one, there's one mother, you know, uh, there's one mother, there's one Wendy and a lot of lost boys. And even like in, in sort of rejecting, you know, uh, 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 Day, handmaiden to Daenerys Stormborn, uh, first of her name, the unburnt, uh, you know, the dragon queen, queen of the Andals and the first men. Um, what is the, what is the character's name? Um, in this movie, sorry, I should have my IMDb uh thing up um well that's kind of funny because uh, Ludacris and tyrese can't remember either yeah uh (laughs) well i can't remember her first name i knew it was a dude's name and it happens to be ramsey right right uh but not ramsey bolton (laughs) you know uh (laughs) ramsey ramsey the the super hot computer genius right and and that like so she's but but my point is that she kind of rejects their advances at the end and and you know cuts off the the uh rivalry the kind of sexual rivalry uh over the woman right and so you end up you end up with like one dad one mom and everyone around the table you know and even in all the fractal levels of that all the sub dads 
you know, <laughs> are like, you know, up, up into like the, up into like an Elizabethan great chain of being up to like God's in his heaven, all's right in the world. Let's say, uh, let's say grace and, and the two things before the audio cuts out as it's fading down and the, the credits music is fading up that, that, uh, Dom gives, uh, thanks for is, is thank you for family and thank you for the strength to do. And you can imagine what, how the rest of that sentence, uh, plays out. So I, the, the, just the, the, the point that I wanted to make was this is like, this is like the ending got its Broadway musical, um, it's it's Broadway musical time. This is like the ending of Act One of Into the Woods, right? Where everyone is happy and everything is good, uh, right? You know, and uh, even though ex- there are problems, but everybody is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. and the the uh, uh, you know uh, all the curses have been ended. The reverses wiped away. I'm trying to remember the thing. Ever after, journey over, something, 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 and it's not just for today, but tomorrow and extended ever after is the end of the song in in. Uh, uh, into the woods, uh, or is the the act one closer in Into the Woods? And then a beanstalk rises up in the sky right before the lights go out, uh, right? And my my point is that the the white girl dreads of Charlize Theron are the beanstalk, you know, uh, <laughs> ascending into the um, ascending yeah. into the sky, and that's that's all that uh, that's all that's left. So to to consider a few other hoods, right, and a few other engine swaps that happen. Um, we, we have to acknowledge that the movie makes a really big, I would say unjustified, but I mean, it's justified because it's awesome. And for no other reason, leap with the Jason Statham character, right? With the Shaw, the Shaw's brothers, the Shaw brothers, not the, uh, the Hong Kong legends, but the Shaw brothers, um, by basically forgetting that he killed Han. Right. Like, uh, like, cause Jason Statham's character at the end of, at the end, during what we don't know is that during Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, Jason Statham runs a car into Han and then blows him up with a bomb, right, and kills him. In retribution for the events of Fast and Furious 6, where the team takes down his brother, played by Gaston from the new Beauty and the Beast movie, as well as Bard from the Hobbit movies. And so Jason Statham is introduced as an unambiguously bad dude. And then throughout Furious 7, he is like a Terminator, right, who is chasing them wherever they go to try to kill them in retribution. And he's not a good guy, and he is not redeemable. Uh, he is lovable, and he is awesome, but he is not redeemable. And in this movie, it, this is all kind of retconned because we focus less on the fact that he killed Han and more on the fact that he was party to his brother's criminal activities, right? He's a traitor. They focus more on sort of the Shaw family legacy, the, the nuclear family. And this is interesting, right, because this is presented as sort of an aristocratic family after a fashion, although it's a joke aristocratic family because they have such thick working-class British accents. But it's like they have a pedigree, right? They have traditions that they uphold, right? Uh, they're the crime family, and they also have values and codes, although they have less kindness. Uh, but but there is an engine swap wherein Jason Statham is turned from being a sort of dark angel of vengeance, uh, and and there's no way that Dom would have forgiven the guy who murdered Han that fast. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that being said, this movie just sort of washes that away and disregards it because they're saying, look, we need to put a boat engine into Jason Statham's character because we're losing the rock. We have nothing else to do. <laughs> like it's just necessary. And I feel like I mean I don't know, Matt. I'm okay with that. You okay with that? Yeah, I mean it's it's. Uh... 
Yes, it. Uh, I, I feel like the the being made from spare parts, being kind of rebuilt on the fly. There's kind of a ship of Theseus quality to that, right? And yeah. I feel like this whole franchise is a ship of Theseus, right? <laughs> <laughs> because it wasn't it was envisioned as as almost an almost an art movie compared with like, especially compared with like Furious Seven. You know, um, oh yeah, that that like that first one and, and the second one also, even though the second one isn't as good like the second one has a point uh like uh <laughs> it was directed by john single i mean come on um the uh the franchise mythology the world building has all been done at breakneck speed you know and so you're gonna like you're gonna drop a couple parts on on the ground right like it's it's as if the engine is still turning over and the wheels are still turning around like that's that's uh that's good enough for me like i'm i'm yeah. willing to i'm sort of willing to accept this because it's a it's a spike equilibrium a little bit it makes yeah. the, it makes the game more awesome yeah, and I feel like the the fight scene with the the prison fight scene with the Rock and Jason Statham is amazing, and I love it. It's one probably one of my favorite fight scenes in a long time. Uh, well, it's hard to say because Logan had some great fights also, and so there's been a lot of good fight scenes recently. But it's, it's my favorite. It's really good. Yeah, but the, the the fight scenes in in Logan are about vulnerability, and the fight scenes in in the prison section of uh fate of the furious are about invulnerability yeah that's exactly they're very different and then there's of course the scene with the baby where jason statham pulls his expendables version of chow young fat via shoot 'em up right by carrying the baby and and engaging in all the gunplay and hand-to-hand combat on the plane before saving the baby and you have a wonderful alvin and the chipmunks christmas song playing uh, did you know it was Christmas time at all? I sure didn't. There's nothing else in the movie to indicate that it's Christmas. I wonder if if there's not going to be any snow in wherever it is that there. No, there's lots of snow because they're in the ice caps. But uh, but then there's that. Now there's two other engine swaps. Well, one is not a swap, which is I loved that they made little nobody uh, not a good person, right? Uh, a racist. You could argue whether he's a racist. Uh, he's certainly rude. He certainly abuses. He certainly um, appreciates his power beyond the point of usefulness. And he's a great example of how uh, problems of operation can become problems of attitude and problems of kind of ideology. Uh, and, and it's hard to distinguish which is which, right? Like Scott, Scott Eastwood's character, Little Nobody, uh, right? Is that his name? I'm going to call him Little Nobody, Little Lil Zed, Little Zero. Uh, is, he is told to bring in this team and he handcuffs them. And, which is which is a, a faux pas because they're an elite commando unit apparently, and they're asking for help and they shouldn't be handcuffed unless they're they're doing sort of a good cop bad cop thing, right? And then he threatens the rocks he threatens the rocks family earlier. He and he he sort of makes casual comments about how that are sort of threats or mean or that like he diminishes Tyrese a lot. He definitely comes off as as very uh, out of line is the kind way of putting it. And the question is, is he out of line because Kurt Russell hasn't taught, told him how to do his job and hasn't sort of trained him yet? Is he, and he's inexperienced and he'll learn how to do it better and he'll learn the consequences of his actions with time. Is he out of line because he's racist? Which is, I think, I think that's in the movie. I think that that's, I mean, maybe you disagree and I wouldn't go to the mat over it, but like, I think, I think it's, it's pretty strongly implied that the whole nobody operation is run by white people who don't care about. Oh yeah, it's color. the yeah exactly. Yeah. It's the it's the CIA. It's a bunch of yeah. of Ivy League stuff shirts, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and then, it's, and, then and, the, and like yeah. the the Kurt Russell character has kind of been around the block enough to know uh, to know what the world is. But like, um, but yeah, that's it's uh, it's a kind of old. It's a sort of old world kind of Cold War uh, uh, value system, I guess. Yeah, and so the question, the the, the point there is. Uh, you might be okay with where the car's going, and you might even be okay with who's driving it, but there is some troubling stuff under that hood for the Fast and Furious team, and, and I am cautious about seeing them around the table at the at the grace, right? Because those are people that could betray you at any moment for just because they're told to, right? And then they don't trust you. You could even see, like, Scott Eastwood going rogue and helping the Fast and Furious team against... Oh, by the way, my favorite car... People ask me what my favorite car in the movie was, and it's not... It's probably not one. Of, well, it's not one of the really awesome cars. It was that I loved that when we first meet Scott Eastwood, he's driving a Subaru BRZ, yeah. which is the Subaru version of the Scion FRS, aka the Toyota eighty six. And uh, this is a a sports car that is made to be relatively safe to buy for teenagers and young adults. Right? It is not supposed to be fast. It is not supposed to be dangerous. Furious. Yeah. What's up? It's not supposed to be fast. It's not supposed no. to be furious. No, but it's supposed to be stylish and a little bit more fun to drive. Uh, sort of like a Miata, but not a convertible. Like is sort of what it's competing with. And it is. It is not the hardcore gearhead car, right? That you would. Ex- certainly not the hardcore gearhead Subaru. And then when he tells everybody, you can. And this is, of course, this is the Brian O'Connor being being the guy driving the Subaru is the Brian O'Connor spot on the team. If you're driving like a, if you're driving that kind of car, and so like a rally car kind of thing, because uh, he would drive the Honda and the hatchbacks and stuff. But then when he says you can have anything you want, he switches to a Subaru WRX. I think it's a WRX STI, which is the sort of Yabo gearhead. Uh, Subaru, which is the all-wheel drive, high horsepower, no comfort, right? Like, uh, like track day car. Uh, you know, I mean, like, there's a lot of grades of it. There's a lot of trims of it. But going from the BRZ to the WRX is kind of a poetic ascent that I felt was very subtly worked into the film, and I appreciated it. And I just wanted to point out that I appreciated it. There's other things about the cars that you might appreciate. Feel free to comment on them in the comments. But I'm just saying that, that under their hood, there's not something that you can't trust. And the other thing is I want to talk about the driverless cars. Yeah, that's yeah. Before we oh. before we stop, let's let's uh, yeah. definitely hit the uh, the driverless cars. I mean, this this podcast may be too fast and too furious, and we may have to revisit some of these things next next week. But we can't let today elapse without talking about that. And I just want to point out that like the the driverless cars are fit into this dichotomy that I've been proposing of sort of one versus many, right? And yeah. that like is it is it one thing or many things? The the thing that came to mind uh, more than any other cinematic reference was all of the Beatles in the mummy. Right. Uh, and the way all the Beatles, the kind of the, the swarm of Beatles, uh, you know, would like overwhelm you. And, and the, the idea of the sort of the column of or, or sort of like rushing water, the kind of the column of cars coming down the street, going around, uh, has the same kind of like, uh, has the same sort of like they have a collective force and they have kind of an individual, uh, individual horror as they kind of scurry, uh, uh, along the the streets of New York, but it's about. I mean, it's a fear of sort of drone warfare. It's a fear of uh, driverless cars. It's you know, it's uh, the, there are a lot of things kind of encoded in this uh, in this one image. Uh, how, how did you react yeah. to it? Well, I mean, I love my favorite moment in it. 
other than just the fact that it existed and that we find that we already have the horror scenario for driverless cars fully throated and singing on screen was just glorious. Right. It's like that all the, uh, how much did, how do you think, how much do you think Chrysler paid to have all of its cars hacked in this movie? I know that is <laughs> of course. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Well, that is funny. That is funny. But my favorite moment was when there's one of the cars, the cars are falling out of the, like third or fourth car parking, uh, third or fourth floor parking garage slash showroom or whatever that is, right? And they're crashing to the streets below. And there's a moment where it shows you in mid-flight the backup camera for one of the self-driving cars, and it flashes because the backup camera is picking up the rapidly accelerating street below, and it flashes red and, like, warns you that it's about to have a rear collision. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is just such a, a – just an undercut. And, and I loved it because – well, first of all, if you think about the distance between drivers and engines, right, this idea that uh, – that the the driver of the self-driving car is not much of a driver and you can't trust them, right? Like the, whatever, whatever sort of algorithm is deciding where the self-driving car goes is very secondary to the, the engine, the machinery of the car that propels it forward, right? This idea that, the, that there is very little agency. The agency is very timid and small, but it's not human. And, you know, and, and it's, it's, um, it's all, it's like you, what you do is you take the driver and you make it part of the car, right? And, and by doing that, the car's ability to go becomes inseparable from the car's ability to control itself, uh, which and, and you can interpret that in a bunch of ways. But I took this to mean that the ability of the car to control itself has been much diminished. Right. Or the, the ability of the car to be controlled. Right. Uh, by anything, by anyone has been much diminished um, because of the control aspect. And again, I'm not saying control. I'm really talking about agency. Right. And the car is not just a car. In fact, serious cars are never just cars. But it's this wonderful idea that that you can take personal agency in a, writ large, and you can imbue it through what you're talking about—the one to many, right? You can you can iterate it, you can repeat it, you can you can make it uniform, you can make it collective, and you can take your sort of iterated aggregate collective version of human agency, and you can bake it right into the pudding of what makes everything go. And what you end up with is really bad, inadequate human agency, right? Like you don't just end up with a really strong, you end up with a really strong force that everybody goes in the same direction, but you end up with a, a sort of childlike inability to make meaningful decisions the right way. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's sort of like the cars are sort of fascist, right? The cars are all driving the same direction. They don't care about who they kill. Right. Uh, they just they need to do what they need to do. And uh, and they're led by this cult of personality by Cypher who controls them, you know, through through the the various machinery that she has. I just thought it was a wonderful specter of terror and horror. And uh, and I think it plays really yeah, well off this idea. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And the, the it's the what it is, it's it's the kind of the unknown because, the you know, people who are sort of gearheads who like to kind of swing a wrench and, and work on their cars will bemoan. Right. The fact that like to work on modern cars, you more or less need like a computer peripheral that hooks up to the data port on the car yeah. because anything if they, even, if they even give you the code to access it, yeah, right? yeah ex- exactly. exactly and that that like so that your your ability to to kind of uh to kind of tune up to work on to swing a wrench to like uh uh fix your own even just do an oil change a little bit is sometimes a little uh is sometimes a little obscure i i tried once to jump uh i was <laughs> trying to jump um uh jump a, a 
my car or someone else's car off of a, a Lexus hybrid SUV. And it, it was like, couldn't even tell where the terminal was. He opened up the hood and it was this one like sheet of, of uh, plastic or fiberglass or something like it, probably not plastic. Cause it was right in the engine of the car, but the, the uh, this was, redi- I mean, it was ridiculous. Right. And like the, the trans Matt, Matt, Lexus hybrids don't jump. They're too dignified. for that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, Lexus hybrids can't jump. Um, yeah. I think there was a movie about that, but the, the uh, the, um, you know, the, uh, the horror, right. The horror has to do with losing control, moving from like a, a sort of hobbyist, uh, uh, you know, maintainable universe to an incomprehensible technological, uh, technological universe. I mean, and this isn't even the real horror, which is when the cars, the, the Skynet horror, right? Like the, the, the cars start controlling themselves, but yeah, in the, it represents, I mean, it represents sort of a new force in, uh, in the fastiverse, though, though it's akin to sort of God's eye, right? Like locating it in cars and in like, uh, driverless cars is a, uh, is an appropriate, um, and sort of neat, uh, neat little move. Yeah. We might, we yeah, might, it's yeah. Yeah. We might come back to it. I, and it's interesting that you mentioned Terminator because there's a lot about this movie that feels similar to Terminator in the way that it deals with metaphors about child, child, children and parents and the future. Right. But, uh, but yeah, maybe we have to revisit this when Mark's around when we have our family together to see what he thinks about it. So he's a big Terminator expert. Um, Definitely. Well, excellent. Uh, Pete, the, the, we might, we might just need to, uh, back this car into the, the, the parking space of the podcast parking space. Um, but we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a, a great conversation in the show notes, uh, in the comment section on, on this. Um, I, I, uh, really enjoyed, uh, having listener feedback that was the basis of the last episode. So I would, I would like to do something like that again. It was, it was just really fun to sort of talk, uh, to talk with you and involve, uh, you in the conversation between, between me and Pete. And, and we might do something, do something like that. Uh, and, and, and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. <laughs> On Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. Great spirit. Thank you for this meal that we're about to enjoy. Thank you for the friendships that have carried us along the way and the family that we bring with us, whether it's the family we're born with, the family we make, or the family we choose. Thank you for our shared history and experience. Thank you for our commitments to each other. Thank you for our codes and kindness. Thank you for everything that brings us together. And most of all, Thank you for fast cars.